Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Radiotherapy. Um, I'm Dr. Doolittle, and we've got lots to tell you about this morning. Our studio is super virtual to begin with. I think Trainer Wheels is probably somewhere in, I don't know, Carlton or wherever you live, Trainer Wheels. Um, Panel Beat is in the studio, and believe it or not, I'm in Darwin, and we're going to try and run the show from these very remote uh, far-flung reaches. We've got heaps of great stuff to, to talk about though this morning. First up, Trainer Wheels is going to discuss how an Indigenous, how Indigenous-run health organisations can use their successful approach to coronavirus safety to help transform mental health systems. And we've also got two great guest interviews this morning. And there's a little bit of a theme running. The theme is portrayals of mental health in the media and clinicians engaging with the media. So to begin with, I probably should ask you, have you watched the first episode of Addicted Australia on SBS, a four-parter all about addiction following 10 people? The first episode's already been on. Well, our first interview is with Professor Dan Lubman, who essentially sort of doesn't quite host it, but he's the doctor running the whole program that they're on. He's throughout the show. And he's the director of Turning Point in uh, Victoria, a national organisation, and the Professor of Addictions at Monash Uni. And Dan's going to talk about the SBS show and how addiction care needs to change in Australia. And second up, our second interview is we've got three psychiatry registrars or trainees who started a podcast a few years ago, Michael Mazzolini, Shakira Kumar and Alana Coburn. And uh, we think more healthcare workers should get into the media. So we thought we'd ask them a little bit about the podcast and their experience so far. Anyway, that's that's what's a, what you've got coming up, assuming our technology all holds together. How are things looking in the studio panel, panel Vita? It must be a little bit quiet. You're sounding loud and clear, Doolittle. What's the weather like up in uh, mighty Darwin, up the top end? Oh, I tell you, look, I love hot weather, but even, even my love for hot weather has been tested a few times. You know, before I came up, it said it was going to be 36 and thunderstorms every day. Well, I haven't seen a thunderstorm other than about a, a five-minute one a few days ago, but it's pretty much 37 or 38 every oh, day. Yeah. But I'm staying in beautiful government. I'm in quarantine, yep. so I'm staying in a beautiful government property. with, And it actually has excellent air conditioning, and I've got a lovely little balcony to sit outside on. So I'm actually, I'm actually loving it. Uh, it's, uh, it's beautiful. Doolittle, can you tell us, um, you mentioned you're in quarantine. What's the... What's the rules and regs around that at the moment for Victorians heading elsewhere, in this case, Northern Territory? You know, it's really, it's, it's really confusing for people travelling because every state has different rules. And there are, there are websites that summarise it all. And, of course, the rules are different for overseas versus um, Australians. So, in essence, for Victoria travelling to Northern Territory, it's really quite, it's really quite mm, good. It's easy. You only have to quarantine if you're from Melbourne. So from Northern Territory, each state has their own list of hotspots and it varies from state to state. Northern Territory only considers Melbourne a hotspot currently. And because I'm from Melbourne, I have to quarantine for two weeks. And, um, and, you, may, and you can either quarantine in Howard Springs, which is the facility you might have seen on TV. It's a 500 sort of little huts um, um, built, built up. It wasn't originally built for quarantine, but now it's being used for quarantine although you can apply for an exemption. So I got an exemption and I'm quarantining 
in, as I say, government house on an OSMAT, the Australian Medical Assessment, Assessment Teams training facility. So I'm in like this little two bedroom government house. It's beautiful in the middle of a forest and, and I'm allowed outside and I'm allowed to walk around as long as I'm within my fence. And what kind of human interaction have you got? This. Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> although, um, although once a, every day or so, a, um, a compliance officer drops by randomly um, and uh, to check that I'm, you know, in the house and obeying all the rules and, and always ha- stands outside the gate and always has a chat with me, you know, hi, Steve, how are you going? Oh, sorry, hi, Doolittle, how are you going? <laughs> um, you know, have you got enough food? Have you got enough drink? Are you keeping hydrated? Have you got any symptoms? All that sort of stuff. So it's really very lovely. And I'm working up here. I'm working at the Howard Springs. Um, I'm helping set up the psych program here for um, the return travellers. That sounds and- pretty exciting. Oh, it is. It's a lot of fun. And so I'm on the phone to people and I do Zooms and all that. So it's, it actually, it's, it's, at, the evenings are super quiet because I don't see a soul. The property I'm on, you can't see neighbours or anything. It's in a forest, essentially. But it's, it's like super peaceful. You know, I sit around by myself. I can hear cars in the distance and otherwise it's birds. <laughs> Sorry to hear that this is your only social interaction. <laughs> yeah, I feel apologetic too. But I must say it is good to see you. I haven't seen your face for a long time because we've been doing it on the phone. This is my first Zoom time. It's nice. Ed, I'm, lo- I'm loving Zoom. What about you, Trader Wheels, as we go around the group? You are officially a doctor now. So are you, have you come up with a new name? You can't be Trainer Wheels anymore. I kind of still like Training Wheels. I think I'm going to feel like I've still got my Training Wheels on for a long time. So I'm happy to stick with Training Wheels for now, but maybe we'll brainstorm over the next few years or something. Well done, uh, Training Wheels. Really proud of you. Thanks, Panelbeta. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it feels good. What's happening in in your world, Panelbeta? Well, um, we're at the very, very pointy end, so I just uh, signed off all but the last few of the um, final assignments for the Masters of Public Policy students, so um, they'll wake up to their results tomorrow, and then I'll spend next week answering emails explaining myself. (laughs) Hey, before we go into um, Training Wheels article, panel beta, you know, not, whatever, whatever we are, nine months in, universities were hit hardest. Are, are you gaining a sense of confidence of where universities are heading now towards the end of the academic year? Hmm. The general, if the if the intent of the question is, are we handling things a bit better? Then I would say yes. But if um, we're doing things well, if um, if there aren't people who are getting really damaged, well, the answer is no. You know, there yeah. there's there's a lot of bruising and blood around at the moment. Well, it's pretty scary. I did see, I've seen some articles about how um, you know people are you know the various redundancy programs. That's the word I was after. Uh, sort of in full swing and it just it, it sounds you know, it sounds stressful sounds, it sounds, sounds stressful. horrible yeah. yeah it is it is pretty horrible we won't won't bring everybody down but there was some really good um decra and um arc discovery projects uh, results released during the week and really exciting stuff going on in um in uh, mental health and so on. i don't know if you caught it but um draw people's attention to that if they want to check that out wow yeah no i haven't caught it up here I've, I think I'm a bit isolated. But Trainer Wheels, you know, that's a good segue. Training Wheels has got um, a great article that she was uh, reading this week um, to tell us some really positive news about um, Indigenous health. Take yeah, it away, Training Wheels. It's related to one of our favourite topics on radiotherapy, which is the Victorian Government's Royal Commission into the Mental Health System. We've talked about that a lot of times before, and I always like talking about it on radiotherapy, especially with Doolittle's input. 
Um, and I saw an article this week in The Guardian which highlighted one aspect of the Royal Commission that I hadn't come across before. So I was keen to talk about that today. Um, hopefully we can put a link to it on our Facebook page and other social media. But essentially the article talks about how Aboriginal community controlled health organisations or ARCHOs have had a really successful approach to managing the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I remember early in the piece, people were really concerned that the Aboriginal community would be disproportionately affected if there was an outbreak um, because they have higher rates of all the sorts of comorbidities that we know tend to make people with COVID-19 do badly. Um, but in fact, the, the Aboriginal community have done extremely well, and that's thanks really in whole part to these archos having an Aboriginal-led approach um, that's uh, being community focused and community led. And off the back of that, this article in The Guardian, which I found, was um, talking about this report that they've written, that Vacho have written, the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. They've put together this report, which is being submitted to the Royal Commission for consideration. And it's called Bullet Dern Dern. I'm sorry if I'm not saying that correctly. And that term, Bullet Dern Dern, comes from the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung language, meaning strong brain, mind, intellect, and sense of self. Essentially, Bullet Dern Dern makes these key recommendations, including, which I thought was very interesting, their first recommendation is the creation of five on country healing centres or camps which they describe as being set up to support resilience, healing and trauma recovery through fostering connection to country, kinship and culture. That's a quote from the report. And in fact, the report actually doesn't use the word recommendation. That was my word. They call them solutions. And this is another quote from the report. The word solution is used in the report instead of recommendation because Aboriginal communities have the solutions for creating a culturally safe, sustainable, self-determining mental health system. The solutions are already in their hands. And I thought that was such a great way of putting it that actually when we listen to the communities, they know what the solutions are. It's a matter of having the correct funding and the correct resources allocated to them. Um, and I think it's really hopeful that this report has been submitted to the Mental Health Commission. Hopefully they take on those solutions or recommendations um, and we can see some improvement in some of the mental health statistics for First Nations Australians because we know they are very poor. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's a great report. Um, it's uh, I can't see it being anything other than accepted in full um, with open arms, given that, you know, my I'm not 100% clear on where all this is. Panelina might know better, but my understanding is every hospital or is, or is currently already mandated to have a reconciliation action plan, a RAP, in place, and that the, and each hospital uh, is now committed and required to have these, this ongoing, it's not just a do it once and forget it, it's an ongoing annual review of what we're doing to improve the culture of our hospital, to make it more appropriate, inclusive, and uh, what's the word for, you know, engaged with um, the Indigenous communities that uh, um, attend the hospital. And uh, and I know at my own hospital, it's, it's a really high level process that with senior steering committees, with Indigenous elders, then a broader steering committee that includes representation of like 40 or 50 people from across the hospital, including again, lots of Indigenous people. And then each department has to um, develop its own process that it um, does, does uh, activities each year and changes each year to become more and more um, towards that end point of being an organisation that the Indigenous communities who share the hospital um, feel culturally safe and at home in and feel welcomed in. Um, so it's sort of like, what's the word, uh, an iterative, a process where we keep, um, 
you're going through it and uh, and everyone's screaming out for an understanding of how how we do it best for Indigenous communities. So we're, everyone's desperate to hear the voice. And I think this report that you've highlighted um, is an provides an incredible voice as a platform for us to, you know, start understanding. What are your thoughts, panel beater? Yeah, look, it's such a look. It's simultaneously really one of the most interesting um, areas of of well, you know, use, using the area of um, my work, interesting areas of policy in Australia um, dealing with indigenous um, issues, so to speak. But it it always makes me nervous when I hear um, any policy or proclamation or regulation or. Um, intent even, where it treats Indigenous Australia as one homogenous um, group. And I wonder about this sort of thing, um, and you guys bouncing around a number of different clinics and hospitals and other sorts of scenarios, you must be really acutely aware of just how different settings are, whether it's metropolitan Melbourne compared to rural and regional Australia, let alone remote Australia, each having very particular needs. And the challenges of building uh, a policy response to that to service these very particular needs of these very different communities is just um, incredibly, um, incredibly challenging, no doubt. Yeah, and I think that's why it's so important that these sorts of reports and solutions and this all this kind of um, this effort that's putting into improving things has got to be community-led because I think nobody understands the diversity and the complexity of the Aboriginal community as a whole heterogeneous group of people better than the community itself. Um, so, you know, it's just the perfect... And, you know, they, the, the saying that's said now is nothing about us without us and historically, you know, a lot of policies have been made without actually um, collaborating with community stakeholders and I think we're seeing that changing and improving now that the um, the importance of things being community-led and community-controlled is being better acknowledged now I think. The full report is available online so maybe we can post a link to the Guardian article but there's also the full report is is worth a read too. I haven't read the whole thing yet but it's really beautifully put together and very enlightening and it, it is a good read what I've um, come across so far so I would recommend everybody reading that. And with some beautiful artwork in it too. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a great report. I'm really looking forward to reading it thoroughly too. Um, uh, panel beta, I might hand over to you to throw us to a break. And and I'll just for I'll just by way of heads up for everyone. Um, so after the break, we'll come back and we'll have our interview with Professor Dan Lubman. Now, apologies from Dan, he couldn't make it live this morning. So I pre-recorded this interview yesterday, um, yesterday at the same time pretty much. So, so it's 24 hours previous. And uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Prof Dan Lubman is uh, Director of Turning Point. He's a Professor of Addictions at Monash Uni and uh, he's um, part of the SBS show Addictions Australia. Or is it Addicted Australia? Whatever it is, I got it wrong throughout the whole interview and didn't realise till the end when I listened back and realised I'd been saying the name wrong the whole way. So apologies to Dan in his show, but you'll get the gist of it all. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Welcome back, listeners. I am Dr. Doolittle, and joining me now on Radiotherapy on Triple R is a guy who I've known for a long time and I have an enormous amount of respect for, Professor Dan Lubman. Dan is an expert on addictions. He's the Executive Clinical Director of Turning Point, 
a not-for-profit research and treatment centre for addictions, and he's Professor of Addiction Studies and Services at Monash University. He's got over 500 papers and book chapters, and he's worked in addictions in Australia and the UK, and we're very excited that you're joining the show, Dan. G'day. Good day. So excited to be here myself. Oh, it's so good to see you. I'm, I was just, before we started the interview, I was trying to think, how long ago did we meet? It must be 20 years now. How long have you been in Australia? Oh, don't give that figure away. It's a long time ago. Yeah, so I came to Australia in 99. So it's, um, it, it doesn't seem that long ago, but I don't know what happened in between, but here no, we are again. Because I remember when you first came, we met, I think, at a conference and we had a chat and, you, and I think you told me you'd done your PhD in the UK and I think you'd done it on something to do with heroin. Now I'm trying to remember a 20-year-old oh, you've got a, You've got a great memory. Yeah, no, so I did a PhD looking at the effect of um, cues in the environment, so triggers how um, things that relate to drug use prompt craving in the brain. And so I did a, a study looking at... Uh, you know, want to want to you know, right at the start of that um, period of brain imaging and addiction, looking at how different things in the environment can precipitate craving and how what that looks like in the brain and how that relates to treatment outcomes. And of course, now twenty years down the track, you know, you're the executive director, you're a professor, and of course, you've just taken part in this amazing show of which I've only watched the first part because it launched on. Um, Tuesday, I think it was, on SBS called Addiction Australia, all about drug addiction. And uh, wow, what a fascinating show. Why don't we start the ball rolling, talking a little bit about drug addiction. Now, one of the most amazing things that you said in that first show was the average person takes about 20 years to get access to treatment. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, I think... As you would know, I mean, addiction is the most stigmatised health condition globally. Um, and I think that's largely because we still largely see it as, you know, something to do with poor willpower or poor choices or in some ways, you know, these sort of moral models of addiction that somehow it's, you know, people are somehow immoral and, and need to be blamed for the condition. So there's an enormous amount of confusion out there. And I think also, you know, because drug addiction and because because drug use more broadly is in that framework of illegality, there's yeah. that whole war on drugs and the whole messages around linking drugs to criminal activity and and so by default people who use drugs being somehow criminals or or you know or bad people and I think um, you know that's why we see such a long delay in help seeking and and that's why. We wanted to do a show, um, a documentary, to really sort of bust some of the myths around the people who develop addiction. Yeah, I think it's just fascinating. I remember when I started in anxiety disorders 25-odd years ago, the um, average time to treatment back then was seven years. And that was also considered to be largely due to stigmatisation. And I, and I haven't seen any recent research, but my guess now is the average time's down to about a year now for people. You know, the majority of people I see have had their anxiety disorder less than a year. And that's been the challenge of, of overcoming stigmatisation, which was spearheaded in Australia by, you know, Beyond Blue largely and Black Dog Institute. Do you need an equivalent thing for um, addictions? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think you, you would know this, Steve, in our medical lifetimes, we've seen so many conditions move from being highly stigmatised to being accepted by the community. And, and the idea of celebrating recovery, celebrating success, celebrating the, the effectiveness of treatment as in being embraced by the community. 
so I think back when I started in medicine and you know I, I think back now to when we looked at cancer for example and unbelievable I don't you know when you think about it now but I remember working as a medical student and seeing you know people come in with you know end stage you know live um cancer breast cancer liver cancer you know felt incredibly to blame for having the cancer didn't present to treatment because they thought treatment didn't work and so we used to see this enormous delay in people presenting for cancer and and even you know the idea was you you wouldn't want to tell people they had cancer you know relatives would say to us don't tell them they have cancer because they'd be upset we don't want them to know and when you look back at it now you think wow that was a different world and today we have you know test matches we have sporting events we have everyone wearing pink you know we have this whole celebration of people who've battled cancer and, and survived and and similarly you know it's only 10 years ago or you know with you know as you say beyond blue that's really helped us turn around um the whole stigma to do with depression and people coming out and telling their stories and the whole movement to early intervention and prevention HIV is pretty similar, you know, same sort of story. And really the addictions, you know, one of the last bastions of this, you know, we don't hear those stories as recovery. We don't hear the fact that people recover because when they do come out, we have a media that, you know, has a narrative that, you know, you know really continues to attack them. So we don't see those visible champions of recovery. And so we have this idea in the community that treatment doesn't work. And we know from... Uh, international research that one of the biggest predictors of stigma is when the community feels there isn't treatment available mm. you know? and so for us being involved in the documentary was this opportunity to sort of dispel so many of the so many of the myths we're going to talk about today but in particular that it's a real health condition you know these are real people addiction doesn't discriminate it affects us all and that it's a highly treatable condition yeah, it's that triple whammy. People don't believe the treatment works. People believe the addiction is the person's fault and that there's no medical element. And people see it as criminal behaviour, that stupid war on drugs. And yeah, it's, you, I mean, it's, it seems like such a lot to overcome. But on the other hand, so much has been overcome already. And, and the show that you've done is so incredible. Hey, I was also fascinated, and this didn't actually surprise me at all, that you know, for each person who's addicted, at least seven people are affected personally. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Who are those people and what's it like for them? Well, I think as you're aware, Steve, you know, when we, when we talk about addiction and we talk about any health condition, really, it's not just the individual who, who, who you know, is affected. We know that family members are often the first people to recognise when there's a problem. But again, the shame and stigma associated with addiction isn't just applying to the individual. It actually reflects on, you know, their, their family and their, their loved ones. And, and what we also see is that not only does the individual not, not able to reach out, you know, for fear of judgment and fear of blame, the family themselves, the research that we've done in that space has shown that they're actually afraid to actually reach out and get support from their support network because they feel that they're going to in some way be blamed for their loved one's uh, addiction. So the family around them, their loved ones, and then, you know, what, what, I think this has probably happened to you as well, Steve, is, you know, whenever I go out socially and I tell people what I do, um, the amount of people who tell me about people they know, with colleagues, their peers, the community, I mean, it's such a common issue, you know. I'm, I'm always, you know, in some ways amazed by 
how how freely people tell me stories around people they know quite close to them who are struggling with addiction. Yet <laughs> we don't talk about it in public. We don't they don't come out and talk about it in a free way. And you know the fact that it is you know affects so many of us and you know both in in our personal lives and our work lives uh, but we don't talk about it you know i think that's where you know it's fantastic to have this opportunity to have a documentary come out and for us to start this conversation you know i did a little mental exercise and i'd encourage people to do it at home right now i did a mental exercise this morning where i tried to count how many people i know well and i defined well as just friends and family basically and then i tried to count up how many had an addiction to do my own little survey because the thing that you said on the website and i just want to double check this it's one in 20 people have an addiction now you know i easily came up with to be honest more than one in 20 and certainly in my family and you know amongst my friends of course a lot of my friends are doctors and they're good at keeping their addictions quiet but um maybe not so much amongst them you know, is it really only 5% of the community or is that 5% with quite with a, an addiction that is significant, like interfering with their work and relationships? That's right. So, so we know figures from, um, you know, the National Survey of Mental Health and Wellbeing. We know, we know that one in, one in five Australians will suffer with an alcohol, drug or gambling problem at some time in their life. Right. Um, and, then, and then we've got a spectrum. And then when we're talking about addiction, we're talking really about you know, the far end of the spectrum where it's really impacting on them physically, mentally, in terms of their social world, in terms of their study and, and work life. Um, but, you know, it's a very common, as you say, it's a very common condition. And particularly, you know, when we work in the space of mental health, you know, it's enormous comorbidity in terms of people both having a mental health condition and also struggling with an alcohol, drug or gambling problem. Yeah. Hey, I want to... Um... I want to quiz you a little bit on how you got involved in the show. As you no doubt know, the last show that um, Blackfella Films did was called um, How Mad Are You um, about mental illness, and I hosted that. So I went through probably a similar process to you a couple of years ago, whether or not deciding whether or not to get involved in a reality-style documentary. Um, how did you? What, what was this, What was it? How did you get involved? How did you come into contact with Blackfella Films, and and what made you decide to do it? Well, I think, I mean, as you know, Blackfella Films focus on, you know, social issues that are sort of poorly understood. And I think having done a show, you know, you know, such a good show on mental health, they identified that addiction was an area that, that you know, an area that was highly stigmatised. There was so many misconceptions out there in the public. And it was, I suppose, ripe for a, a documentary to really challenge that community conversation. And so uh, I actually ended up talking to Jacob Hickey came to talk to me, the producer and um, head of factual at Blackfella Films, fantastic guy, came to talk to me and pick my brains really about addiction and what addiction uh, is and uh, how might they address some of those um, community misconceptions around addiction. And we, over a coffee, we had a couple of chats and, you know, interestingly, one of the initial ideas was the idea of following individuals in a rehab and over a month and sort of telling that story. And I think one of the things we talked about early was that, um, you know, one of the big myths we want to dispel is the idea that to get fixed, you know, to get treatment for addiction, you have to go to rehab, you know, mm. because that's what the community believes. And, and so from the outset, we talked about we, this needs to be, this needs to be situated not in 
some sort of residence miles away from where people actually live. You know, addiction is is something that people struggle with in everyday life. So it has to be an outpatient-based program. It has to reflect, you know, the struggle in everyday life in terms of, you know, dealing with addiction, getting control of addiction. And it has to involve... Um, you know, a, a good cross-section of the public to, to, you know, to reflect the fact that addiction doesn't discriminate, it affects us all. We need to see people of different ages, different genders, different backgrounds to understand that addiction, you know, is something, you know, that's incredibly common in Australia and isn't the stereotype that we typically have of, of the person on the park bench, you know, with a paper bag or somebody lying in an alley with a needle in their arm. It's 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 so not like that. And I think people who've tuned in to Addict Australia, you know, we'll see a very different presentation of addiction than, than you know, what we have in our minds. Yeah, just as I, I know, and just as a little aside, um, Jacob Hickey and Darren Dale, the executive producer, they're both great blokes, like amazing, amazing blokes and do an incredible job. Jacob Hickey, though, he was on um, Triple R's morning show, Breakfasters, on Tuesday morning. And I've got to say, the two of you almost sound like brothers. Are you from the same part of England? Oh, separated at birth, I think, uh, Steve. No, <laughs> I, I don't think so. But maybe I, I might go on um, Who Do You Think You Are and see if we can find a link. <laughs> because you do, you know, I was listening to, I listened to the interview on Tuesday and I thought, God, that could be Dan speaking. Hey, uh, how did you choose the subjects then? You know, was it a widespread net that was thrown across and, you know, how, how did that come about? Yeah, so, look, you know, as you know, doing these shows are incredibly risky in so many different ways. You know, so many th- thoughts going through your head that we had to work through in terms of making sure that we had essentially the individual's best interests at heart because you know these are very vulnerable people you know wanting to tell their story in terms of being on national tv and so um there was actually a call out through social media to you know in a very rigorous process as you would be aware that blackfella films go through in terms of really understanding you know who wants to be on it looking at sort of risks um, very comprehensive program of assessment to make sure that you know people who um you know particularly vulnerable uh, wouldn't be exposed and and essentially we came in at the last part of that process of identifying participants to make sure that we felt the clinical risk could easily be managed and and that we felt they were the right individuals to benefit from the program yeah, there's so many ethical sticking points. Um, you must have had to jump. I mean, I remember when they did mental, they, you know, they went through so many organisations like the College of Psychiatry, various ethical groups, getting everyone's input. You must have had to jump through a lot of those hurdles too. Yeah, we did. But I mean, as you know, Steve, I think it's critically important. I mean, this is putting people's, you know, you know, it, it's incredible portrayal, you know, of what people are going through. And, and this is on national TV. And I think for the people who've watched the show, um, th- these are incredibly brave and courageous individuals who are just saying it how it is. It's, you know, and to be able to do that, you know, we had to be incredibly careful in terms of making sure all the risks were managed, making sure they understood, you know, you know what was going, what was ahead of them. Um, so we, we we took those risks really seriously, and and you know I'm, I'm still I'm still amazed that we actually got ten people who put their hand up to tell their story, you know, on national television because with the shame and stigma we just talked about before, and the community perceptions, and and that, that sort of quite harsh media environment in terms of the way that 
the media generally runs stories around addiction. I, I think they're in, I, I'm still astounded by the fact that they put their hand up and, and agree to be part of the documentary. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I know what you mean. It's it's incredible. It's incredibly brave. Um, and I was also incredibly impressed with how well Black Fella Films handled it during Mental too. I never once, for one second, had the impression that their number one interest wasn't the people who are involved and their well-being and all the other stuff, entertainment and making a great documentary came second to the well-being. So that's, and interestingly, as an aside again, one of the participants in Mental, Cameron, who had schizophrenia, is now, um, uh, he's, he's gone on to be quite a significant consumer representative for SANE and he's one of the panellists on um, Radiotherapy on our show. He's not on this Sunday, he'll be on next time we're on. Anyway, so uh, yeah, no, hats off to them and to you for doing such a great job of getting um, everyone. Um, I just want to come back to addiction a little bit before we finish. Why is treatment so fragmented? One of the points that's been made a lot is that it's a little bit of a lottery when you, you know, if you've got an addiction, you go to your GP and say, I've got an addiction, gambling, alcohol, drugs, whatever. It's a, you know, it's a, just a bloody lottery. Why is that? Why is it so? Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, the stigma and shame and discrimination associated with addiction is not just, you know, happening in, in the broader world. It actually happens within the health community as well. Uh, and certainly, Within clinical services and systems, you know, we actually see um, that area, you know, really poorly understood. Um, it's been, f- for one reason or another, sort of not been part of mainstream health. Um, we know that there's a whole generation of health practitioners who haven't had the opportunity to have um, good training around addiction, to, to be able to work within addiction treatment centers to actually understand the population and understand the approaches and what works. And so, you know, unfortunately we're in a state where many health practitioners, you know, don't feel they have the skills to actually um, deal with addiction and, and, and not sure what to do. And, and because of that, many of the views and attitudes, you know, are similar to what we hear in the media. And, and, and that's, that's a real travesty, you know, because it, it, as people know, it's such a common condition, such a common presentation to to primary care, to emergency departments within general hospital. And yet we spend so little time in our curricula, medical, nursing, allied health curricula on addiction. We don't have those opportunities for clinical placements. And in the health system at, uh, itself, it's not, it's seen as this sort of bespoke funny thing on the outside that doesn't really work. We'll just throw a bit of money of it so it's not well integrated into the health system at all and and that fragmentation is is you know creates enormous havoc for the individuals and families that we see because they have to navigate a system that is not you know is not laid out not navigable and and and, and we have we have fantastic clinicians and services in this space but the system, frankly, is broken. It doesn't work. And that's largely because it hasn't really been seen as a health condition. It hasn't seen to be an important part of integration within the health system. And there hasn't been that investment in training the health workforce. And I think until we start publicly saying it is a health condition, you know, it is a common health condition. You know, it's something that's highly treatable. It's something that should be part of mainstream health. You know, until we start having that conversation, you know, we're going to be stuck in this in this space of it being this sort of funnier side to health and lots of people 
struggling and the health system paying the cost because addiction um, is an incredibly costly for the healthcare system in terms of representations. And that leads me to the last thing I wanted to ask you about before reminding people where they can watch the show. One of the things that's come out of the show is rethink is the Rethink Addiction campaign. What's that all about? Well, one of the things we wanted to do is, you know, with the opportunity to have the documentary go live, is, is, is to use this opportunity to rethink how people understand addiction and how they approach treatment. And, you know, in this COVID era, I think we're all rethinking everything at the moment. And, and certainly um, with the documentary and people who watch the documentary can see, I think it challenges a number of those myths and stereotypes in the population. So we're fortunate enough to have over 30 organisations at this stage involved and more getting on board, including the colleges and the AMA and a whole range of treatment services. And it, it's really that opportunity to say, look, we need, you know, we can't, this fragmentation is, 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 is really hurting everyone. We need to have a national plan. We need to have, you know, we need to come together and identify it as a national priority. We need to invest in this area. And we're calling basically on everyone to, to, to rally round, to share their story, because everyone has a story, like we talked about right at the beginning, of addiction, to, yeah. to, 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 to make it much more visible, to, to have this story that we don't just keep to ourselves, to make it a real issue, and to call basically on our state and federal colleagues to, to make addiction a national priority and, and come up with a plan that makes sure that people can have the best outcomes like they do for any other health condition. It's a, um, it's a fantastic endeavour. And, you know, I'm so impressed on so many levels. I'm impressed that you were brave enough to make the show. I'm so impressed with the 10 people. Um, I think the show was so impressive. I'm really looking forward to it you know, each week, the next three episodes. Um, if people haven't watched it, it's on SBS On Demand. The first episode's there already. And as I say, a new episode will be coming out um, each week. Professor Dan Loveman, thank you so much for joining us on Radiotherapy on 3RRR. Um, it's been fantastic hearing about what you'd what you've been trying to achieve, what you've done with the show, and we wish you all the success with your Rethink um, Addiction campaign and uh, hope that some genuine change results from uh, the work that you're doing. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for having us. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now, next up on the show, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we've got three fantastic young psych registrars, um, trainees, who uh, have a podcast called The Psych Review. Um, the three people that we've got on are Michael Mazzolini, Shakira Kumar, sorry if I'm pronouncing all this wrong, and Alana Coburn. Hey, guys, why don't uh, we start off with, um, well, firstly, hello to you all. Let's see if you're all coming through loud and clear. All speak at once. Hey. Hello. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Just for the listeners, we've now got six people on the air. Myself, Doolittle, um, panel beater in the studio, training wheels at her home in Melbourne, and uh, Michael, Alana, and Shakira also, or roughly in Melbourne, although I believe Alana's up in Darwin, um, surprisingly. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But let's begin with you, Michael, perhaps. Why don't you tell us about the podcast? Yeah, uh, the podcast, it's, it's a monthly podcast where, I say monthly with COVID, we've been a little bit lax and it's been every two months or so, but all three of us get together and we have a look at 
the latest research um, regarding mental health, mostly looking at Australian stuff, but we do sometimes go internationally as well. And we also look at like current affairs and stuff as well, like um, the Victorian Britain, uh, Royal Commission into Mental Health, that sort of stuff. And we just sort of talk about it, look at it from different angles and try to um, do it in a way that everyone can understand it. How do you pick your topics? Because they're pretty varied and diverse. How do you go about deciding what you're going to talk about? I think we each sort of tend to gravitate to our own sort of area of interests. Um, but we look at, I think firstly, we go to some of the local journals and look for um, regional matters that might be important. And when there's nothing of interest in those, we might go international and look at some of the big sort of international journals. Um, yeah, and, and we sort of uh, let each other know at least a week in advance so we can all have a read of each other's and, and then go from We've there. We've definitely got, like, areas of interest. So, like, if there's anything with, like, a cultural bench, Shakira is all over it. If there's a report, I just, I love me a 100-page report to go through. So we've all sort of got, <laughs> got our, and Alana loves neurobiology for some reason. So we've all got our own. <laughs> <laughs> just out of interest, where are each of you in your training programs? So just for the public, psych training's um, roughly five years. The first three years are basic and years four and five are advanced training. Where are you each up to? Michael, where are you up to? Yeah, I'm, I'm final year. You say it's roughly five years, though. I've got a kid, so I've been part-time for a while, so mine will be a bit longer than that. <laughs> really, everyone's is. I was, that's why I was yeah. being gentle saying roughly. What about <laughs> uh, I'm just coming to the end of second year. Oh, so you're the you're the yeah. sort of baby of the group. The baby so. of the group, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and fresh <Shakira>? face. <laughs> um, and I'm I'm fourth year. It all seems very even though when we chat. That's one of the things that works really well, though, actually. Yeah. I agree. In fact, in fact, that really struck me was the rapport between the three of you. Listening to the podcast, you know, when I listen to a podcast, the topics of some interest, and I like learning new material. But what keeps me engaged is whether I'm entertained. And that normally comes down for me to the rapport. And I thought the three of you had a great rapport. Uh, how, like, have you known each other for years? How did that come about? Shakira was actually my mentor when I was a HMO um, at a previous hospital. So that's how she and I met and then met us through her. So, yeah. Mm. I, I Shakira and I went to, we went to high school together. So we've known each other for a while. <laughs> we've known each other for far too long and um, now end up working in a very similar sphere. So uh, we, we've, we've got great rapport. <laughs> I love high school stories. What high school was it just so we get the local flavour? <laughs> Ball in high school. Ball in high. Oh, I love a good local high school. <laughs> Part of the reason we wanted to get you guys on is because, you know, as, as um, we're, we're fascinated by, you know, what it's like being clinicians because radiotherapy is a group of about 20 people, you know, who never really had experience in the media and we've all got more or less experience over the years of the show going. And so we're fascinated about hearing other people's stories about entering the media and, you know, because clinicians and people in the health sphere are often really nervous because we feel the media is a little bit of a shark tank and we're scared we're going to get asked nasty questions or going to get trolled and all that sort of stuff. So maybe let's start with you, Shakira, on this one, maybe. Um, were you apprehensive about, you know, putting yourself out in the public? Yeah, a little bit. And I think maybe myself more so than Maz. Maz had a little bit of radio experience before doing this and hosted another podcast. So it's definitely something I'd never done and had those those apprehensions for sure. I think um, you, you might notice it, and I, I don't recommend anyone to listen to our <laughs> first couple of episodes. Okay. I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, but I think... 
think we've gotten a lot smoother and, and I've become certainly I felt it it's become a bit more natural and um, less terrifying to talk to an audience so uh, there's definitely been some per personal sort of growth for me and I think you can probably tell as we all interact with each other as well. What about you Alana as the youngest member of the group then? <laughs> yeah I, I think um, it's helped me that we like off air have had some useful conversations amongst ourselves before recording the podcast about those exact things and the ways in which to um yeah I guess best represent what it is that we want to say um, so yeah, it's helped me join yeah oh I think you've done it really I think you've all done it really well and um I I suppose it's sort of you sort of host it um Michael so in a sense you know you sort of often lead the conversation so I guess it comes through that you've done a little bit before by the way panel beater I can't see you through the zoom so I'm not quite sure whether you did you want to jump in with a question at this point um, no, I didn't have anything in my mind right now, although I'm just um, really enjoying the conversation. Sorry, it caught me off guard there. Um, Sorry, Panel Beater. My, my, I wasn't sure because just for the listeners, the rest of us are on Zoom and we can see each other, but we can't see Panel Beater. So, yeah, I'll, I'll throw to Jess then um, to Training Wheels and then we'll come back to you, Panel Beater, if you like. I should change my Zoom name to my radiotherapy name so there's less confusion. It's a bit tricky, isn't it? I was just going to ask with the sort of, you know, being a bit afraid of the media and the shark tank trolling thing have you had any backlash just having to scroll through your episodes you do cover some sort of controversial topics I suppose um has there been any kind of negative feedback or is it all really positive what's that been like for you guys maybe Alana could you speak to that a bit yeah we have um received some I suppose you call it emotionally charged messages via various social media platforms um I think in some situations we felt that it's perhaps better not to engage further with those comments, particularly if they were, you know, things like a threatening nature. But I think when you're talking about these topics, it's natural that people are going to want to contact you directly. And if you're putting yourself into that sphere, you should, I guess, expect it and be prepared to respond to it. And maybe it's just a manifestation of their frustrations about psychiatry in general, rather than our podcast specifically. <laughs> And Michael, how would you sort of sum up the experience so far? What, you know, what do you reckon you've got out of it, you know, given you've been doing it parallel with training and kids and everything else? Did that think, yeah. perspective at all? Yeah, I think it's been really good. I think um, for for some members of the podcast, it's, it's like come up in job interviews, so it's been helpful in that regard. <laughs> um, I had an exam a little while ago and afterwards one of the other people sitting in the exam came up to me and said, uh, I recognised your voice. It could work on the podcast. So that's nice as well. But I think one of the big things for us personally is just from doing this for almost three years now, it's like at least 100 articles that we wouldn't have read otherwise. So I think we're better doctors for it. Like we just sort of have a better understanding of what's going on. So I think that's really helpful as well. And also you discuss the articles in quite a bit of depth. You know, really quite often I'm when I'm listening to it, I'm sitting there. Uh, I think I was saying this to uh, Training Wheels before the show, you know, Often I sit there and I sort of gasp and think, oh, my God, they're about 10 years ahead of where I was when I was at their stage of training in terms of your sophistication stuff. So it, I really get this sense that because you're discussing things in a public sphere, you're really on your top game. It's almost like you're in an exam and you're discussing things at a really in-depth level. So it doesn't. It, it, would, it seems to me it's fantastic exam prep. Definitely. Yeah, it definitely helps. Yeah. I listened to a large back catalogue recently before an exam. <laughs> you could always just 
go through all the do a podcast on exam questions. Yeah. Hey, Camelby, did you yeah. want to come in at all, um, my friend? Yeah, yeah. I'm really keen um, to hear about where this might fit in. If we thought about it in, um, you, you mentioned how this has made you better doctors, and that uh, no doubt stands to reason. But I wonder where this fits in with uh, potential for curriculum for for universities and their training of doctors. You know, so in curriculum there'd be, um, I'm, I'm sure there's. Um, times when you're dealing with how to how to communicate with a patient, how to communicate with other doctors and so on, and those audiences make sense, don't they? But when you're trying to maybe also engage a general public, there's a, another vocabulary, there's another kind of literacy required, isn't there? I wonder if you could maybe talk to some of the distinctions that you see. I think, um, well, in terms of making it curriculum, I recently tried to get it approved to be um, continuing professional uh, education for psychiatrists so uh-huh. that they could do it and then tick off the... It didn't work out, though. So, unfortunately, we're, we're not official in any way, um, shape or form. <laughs> <laughs> but on the, I think one thing is if if there are, like, sort of young doctors or young mental health professionals out there, it's very easy to make a podcast. And I think just mm. doing it or, or doing something like this is a really good way to develop those skills because you have to put a lot of thought into it. Um, nothing official, though, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, the, bar- the barrier to entry is really low, isn't it, right? Um, it doesn't yeah. say anything about, the you know, what's involved in putting together quality, but certainly the barrier to entry is, um, is practically none. You just need a picture, some music, and a microphone, and you're good to go. <laughs> hey, do little. I don't mean to be the raining rain on the parade, but we've got about six. Um, we've got about uh, forty-five seconds. Okay, then I'm going to um, tie it all up because it is beautiful listening to you guys, and I really think it's an amazing feather to have in your cap on top of your clinical skills to be able to engage with the public through this channel will be something you use for your whole training. So um, thanks so much for coming on. I'm going to jump straight into the thank yous, given that we've only got 45 seconds. First up, thanks, Panel B, to being in the studio and holding this whole thing together. Um, thank you to the audience for, I mean, it must be a little bit strange listening to people all over the country and us being slightly um, little gaps here and there because we don't know who's going to speak next. So thank you for putting up with the technology that we're going through um, in these strange times. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.